like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. We are in the third and final week of our sermon series looking at the classic spiritual disciplines. Those disciplines that have stood the test of time. They have proven their value over and over to those we read about in the pages of Scripture and those who came well after Scripture. Many followers of Jesus who have benefited greatly from practicing these disciplines and growing in their walk with Christ. You know, discipleship, many people look at discipleship, the process of becoming more like Jesus, and we look at two extremes, and neither extreme is right. We see this extreme of some people saying, you know, if I want to be a better, better follower of Jesus, it's all about me changing my habits. It's all about me developing good habits and stopping bad habits and quitting bad things cold turkey and just working really, really hard to be more like Christ. Well, that's an extreme that is not accurate. But the other extreme is, well, you know, Scripture says the Holy Spirit is going to be this vehicle of helping me grow in my walk with Christ, of transforming me to look more like Jesus. So I'm just going to sit back and I'm going to wait for the Holy Spirit to do something. But really, both extremes are wrong. Spiritual growth is absolutely driven by the Holy Spirit, but we are given the privilege and given the honor of coming alongside the Holy Spirit as we strive to be more like Jesus. As the Holy Spirit transforms our hearts and transforms our minds, we are invited to be a part of it by God's grace. Now, as we look at these three disciplines, we've talked about the discipline of study two weeks ago. The importance of digging into Scripture, of reflecting on God's Word, of chewing on God's Word, asking questions of God's Word, letting it truly saturate every single aspect of our lives. We talked about fasting, that awkward uncomfortable, often neglected discipline that seems to have kind of gone out of style. But that discipline of fasting is not so that we can lose weight. It's not so that we can prove ourselves to be super holy people and impress others. We're going to talk about that here in just a second. But rather, it reminds us of our dependence upon God. It reminds us that no matter how much bread we have here, no matter how much food we have in this life, eventually our bodies, they weaken. And they die. But the bread of life, which we find in Jesus, on the cross, his body broken, his blood shed, that bread sustains us into eternity. And fasting reminds us that in the big scheme of things, in the eternal scheme of things, that's the bread that matters. The bread of life alone. Now today we close out our sermon series talking about the discipline of prayer. Now, being that it's Mother's Day, I was thinking, okay, well, how can we acknowledge the moms out there, but also tie it back together with prayer? So, as you leave, if you are a mom, or even if you're not a mom, and you would like to grab one of these, on the welcome desk, we have some handouts that we printed out. Two of them are for moms. Some of one, two of them say how to better pray for your children. That's an important resource to have. One of them tells you how you can pray for your marriage. That's also very important. And we also have a handout for husbands. Husbands, how you can pray for your wives. Because one of the best gifts that you can give your wife, or that you can give your wife on Mother's Day, is the commitment that you're going to be praying for them. It's not necessarily about flowers, it's not necessarily about jewelry, it's not necessarily about reservations at a restaurant, but rather praying for your spouse. But at the same time, we also know that Mother's Day can be hard on a lot of people. 
Whether you've recently lost a mother and this is your first Mother's Day without that person, or whether it's the 20th Mother's Day without that person, we know it can be difficult. Maybe you want to be a mom, but for whatever reason, outside of your control, you can't. Maybe you have a strained relationship with your mom and things are a little bit tense on Mother's Day. We want you to know that you are not forgotten. And then in the same way that we are grateful for our moms who have proven to be wonderful examples and wonderful influences, we're also grateful for those who may not be moms yet. For those who may be more spiritual mothers than anything else. So as we get ready for our sermon this morning, I'm going to pray. We're talking about prayer, so I guess it's relatively a good idea that we pray. So I'm going to pray, and if you would, please pray with me, and we'll pray for our moms as well. Father, we are grateful for this time that we have together. We're grateful that we can come into your presence. We're grateful for the moms who have invested in so many of us, the moms that give us life, the moms that provide for us and take care of us all throughout life. And God, we honor them. But God, we also remember those who, for Mother's Day, it isn't really a whole lot to celebrate. It's more of an unfortunate reminder. But God... We're grateful for those people, too. We lift all those people up to you. Moms, all the people we mentioned. But most importantly, we lift this time up to you. Because as important as Mother's Day is, we come here not to celebrate moms, but to celebrate your son Jesus and what he did for us. That's what we have in common. That's what unites us as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're grateful for that. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. The last several weeks, we've been jumping all over the place in the Bible, looking at a lot of different passages, but we're going to mainly focus on that passage. We're going to be in some other places too, but you can keep your finger on Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one from underneath our chairs, follow along on the screen, and if you don't own one, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. Now, prayer is a very important part of Scripture. In the Bible, there are 650 prayers mentioned. 650. That's a lot. Jesus is recorded as going off and praying 25 different times. Even Jesus took time away from ministry, took time away from other people to pray, to have solitude with God. To relate to God, to communicate with God, to look for refreshment, to get recharged a little bit. If even Jesus needs to do it, I think it's safe to say that we should do it as well. Paul mentions prayer 41 different times, whether he's commanding people to pray for a certain need, whether he's requesting prayers on his own behalf. Paul mentions it all over the place. Just like we talked about with fasting last week, prayer makes tons of appearances all over the pages of Scripture. And I would also argue that there are very few people out there who don't like the idea of prayer. Even people who aren't Christians. Even people who aren't religious in any way whatsoever, who do not practice any type of faith. There are very few people during times of tragedy, during times of hardship, who would be offended if Christians were to say, you know, I'm praying for you. Christopher Hitchens was a famous atheist author, and Christopher Hitchens was well known for, quite frankly, being kind of rude to people who practiced Christianity. He was not a friendly guy, 
in debate. He was in no way whatsoever gracious, in no way polite. He did not mince words about the fact that people who believe in any type of God are clearly just foolish. They're clearly naive. But late in his life, Christopher Hitchens was diagnosed with esophagus cancer, cancer of the esophagus. And as he's suffering, it was not a good experience for him. It was very late in the stages of cancer. There was a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort late in his life. There was very little treatment they could offer him to take away that pain, to take away that discomfort. And I saw a video of a Christian guy interviewing Christopher Hitchens as he's struggling with this battle with cancer. And Christopher Hitchens said, you know, I've heard from a lot of Christians. Some of them have said, good riddance, we're glad this is happening to you, enjoy hell. Not really the most Christ-like way to handle something when someone's dealing with pain and suffering and hardship. But the interviewer asked him, well, have you heard from other Christians that have been a little bit better about that? Have you heard from Christians who have been supportive or encouraging for you during this time? And Christopher Hitchens said, yeah, you know, I've had several Christians contact me and say, you know, we're praying for you as you face cancer. And the interviewer asked him, well, what do you think of that when Christians say that they're praying for you? I mean, you don't believe in God. You think they're foolish for believing in God. What kind of value could their prayers possibly have? And even Christopher Hitchens, this hardened, rude, angry individual, he said, you know, I don't think their prayers accomplish anything. I don't think they're praying to anyone. I think they're still just as naive as they were before, but it's still touching that they would pray for me. People like prayer, even people like Christopher Hitchens. It plays a huge role in the Bible. And even those who aren't sure of any type of faith, they understand the importance of prayer during times like that. Now that brings me to this. The first idea I want to discuss, prayer is not something that we are called to take lightly as followers of Jesus. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Again, keep your finger at Matthew chapter 6, but Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verses 1 through 3. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Now, Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, presumably late in his life. And Solomon was known as one of the wisest men who had ever lived. As he's preparing to take over for his father, David, as a young man, very young man, given this role as king over God's people, he asks God for one thing. He doesn't ask for fame. He doesn't ask for riches. He doesn't ask for power. He asks God for wisdom because he realizes just how overwhelming this responsibility is. So God grants him this wisdom. He gets this reputation as being one of the wisest men around. Rulers from other countries come to hear Solomon's wisdom, to read Solomon's writings. However, Solomon wasn't perfect. Later in his life, he made good decisions, but he made bad decisions too. And so as he writes Ecclesiastes, imagine an old man giving perhaps his last address to his people, sharing everything that he has learned over these years. 
the advice that he gives when it comes to prayer, it's a big deal. Don't take it lightly. He says that maybe the best thing you can do in prayer is draw near to God and not talk to God, but rather listen to God. We should guard our steps. Think about what we're saying. Think about who we're saying it to. That's the point that Solomon's getting at. We're called to be respectful, to be reverent, to honor him, maybe even fear him. Not using tons of words to try and impress God. Not using tons of words to try to build our case before God about why he should answer our prayer request and why our prayer request is more important than the person down the street. That is not the point of prayer. It's not something to be entered into thoughtlessly. It's not something to be done flippantly. It's not something to be done just as a routine, just as an obligation, or just as some kind of token gesture that we feel we have to do because we're Christians. It is not something to be entered into lightly. Another passage that shows the importance of prayer is Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. We read in that passage, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. You know, sometimes we read the book of Acts and we read these passages about the early church. And we have this very romanticized vision of what the early church looked like. That they had it all figured out. That they were perfect. But if you read past the first few chapters, you learn that even the early church had conflicts. Even the early church had disputes. And the dispute that we see here is that there's two groups of widows. One group is Hellenist or Greek, and one group is Hebrew. Now, there was always tension between these two groups in the early church. They were still in the process of figuring out how to get along and what it meant to be united in Jesus Christ when they had nothing else to be united in. And so this dispute arises. Some of the widows feel as though they're getting the shaft, but they're getting neglected. Many of the widows were completely dependent upon the church for provision. They were dependent upon the church for the things they need because they have a hard time providing for themselves. So as the church leaders try to figure out how to sort this all out, to make sure that everyone's getting what they need, to make sure that everyone is being provided for, we see the church leaders say, you know, this is a big deal. We don't want to dismiss this concern. This is something that we clearly need to address. However, we're going to devote ourselves to prayer. We can't afford to neglect prayer. We can't afford to neglect the ministry of the word. That's how important prayer was to these early leaders. They delegated responsibility so that they could truly dedicate themselves to that. It was a huge, huge deal. Now, I say all of this in hopes of reminding you, but also reminding myself, that prayer is not just something we tack on before a meal. It's not just something that we tack on at the end of a meeting. 
It's not just a filler for our service. That way the worship team can hurry off the stage and I can hurry on and people can be so amazed at how quick and seamless our transition was. That's not the point at all. We are addressing the God of the universe. We are speaking to the God who created everything. Prayer is a big deal. It's not something to be entered into thoughtlessly. It's not something to be entered into flippantly. But what does prayer look like? Practically speaking, what does this look like? Now we finally get to that Matthew chapter 6 passage. We start reading in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So in this big passage on prayer... Jesus starts out by specifically targeting, all right, guys, here's why you don't pray. Here's how you're not called to pray. He specifically mentions this group called the hypocrites, the people who would intentionally go out into public places and make sure that everyone could see them when they're praying. That way, everyone would recognize just how holy they are. And if you look at the passage right before, verses 1 through 4, Of Matthew chapter 6, they're guilty of doing the same thing when it comes to giving to the poor. They would intentionally go out in public places. That way they could give to the poor and everyone could just marvel at how generous they are and how selfless they are. And they could gain recognition and people could just be blown away by their spiritual maturity. If you look at the passage immediately after, there was also a problem with fasting. When they would fast, they would want to make sure that everyone knew that they were fasting. You can imagine a religious leader standing out in public and someone coming up and saying, Hey, uh, Rabbi, you want to grab a meal? And he would say, Oh, no. (laughs) Clearly you didn't notice, but I've been fasting. And I understand your mistake. I understand why you might want to ask me out to a meal, but it's been three, four, no, five days without food for me. And I just would love to eat, but I just can't do that. I don't want to disappoint God, so I'm going to continue fasting. Is it hard? Oh, yes, it's very hard. It's very uncomfortable. But you know what? I'm going to keep doing it because that's what God calls me to do. They would get their recognition. They would get their honor. People would walk away amazed at their ability to fast. But Jesus' point as he talks about giving to the poor... His point as he talks about prayer, his point as he talks about fasting, is that if you feel the need to tell everyone how generous you are with the poor, if you feel the need to tell everyone how much you pray, if you feel the need to tell everyone how much you fast, you might be missing the point. You may get your reward. You'll get your recognition. You'll get your honor. 
People will look up to you and hold you in high esteem, but you'll miss out on the true reward that matters. And that's the reward in eternity that comes from your father in secret. That seems to be the big idea. That word hypocrites, it could also be used of actors. People who put on a show. People who look really good on the outside. People who can convince others that there's something that they really aren't. When it comes to giving to the poor, when it comes to fasting, when it comes to prayer, we are not called to be actors. We are called to be humble servants. That's why Jesus gives an idea of what prayer looks like. Go into your room. Shut the door. Don't do it for recognition. That's not the idea at all. Don't try to impress God with your big words. Don't try to justify why he is somehow obligated to take your prayer request seriously. That doesn't mean that we can't pray in public. It doesn't mean that there is something inherently wrong with praying in front of other people. That's not the idea at all. Jesus is not so much focusing on the act of prayer, but rather the heart of the person praying. That seems to be the main point. Jump forward to verse 9 of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus starts this famous passage, the Lord's Prayer. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, this passage in and of itself could be 5, 10, 15, 20 sermons. There is a whole lot that Jesus is saying here that we often read over that we often take for granted. But let's look at a few of the key themes in this prayer and briefly examine just what Jesus is saying. That first part, hallowed be your name. It gets back to that idea of Ecclesiastes. We are talking to the God of the universe. God is in heaven and we are on earth. It is quite presumptuous for us to approach him thoughtlessly. That's the point that Jesus is getting at. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a pretty bold prayer to make. Because if we truly pray for God's kingdom, what if it infringes upon our kingdom? What if our kingdom doesn't exactly match up with God's kingdom? What if our kingdom requires things that we really like and God's kingdom requires things that really make us uncomfortable, that really concern us? That's a bold prayer to make. The third aspect, give us this day our daily bread. You know, many of us, we would probably have a hard time relating to this prayer, this part of the prayer. Because most of us, if I had to guess, we probably have weeks or maybe even months of food stored up in our pantries. And even if we happen to lose a job, we have enough in our bank account that we can absorb the hit for a good period of time. And we wouldn't have to worry so much about whether or not we're going to have food on the table. But if you put yourselves in the shoes of Jesus' audience, many of these people worked day to day. They had a one-day job. And that job would provide them for food for that one day. So if you go out and you're working and you get sick, or you break an ankle, or something else tragic happens, and all of a sudden you can't work for a week or a month... 
for six months? That's pretty dangerous. That's a bad situation to be in. And so these people would pray and they would say, God, give us this day our daily bread because anything could happen. And for all I know, tomorrow I may not have any bread. It's hard for us to relate to that. But it reminds us that, again, like we talked about last week, we depend upon God at all times, no matter what. This idea of forgiveness, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of debt. I have a lot of sin. I have a lot of mistakes. I have a relatively negative track record in some areas of my life. We all owe a debt. Every single one of us. And we trust Christ to forgive those debts because we can't pay those debts. Only Jesus can. Only his broken body and shed blood can meet that requirement. But we'll come back to that idea of forgiveness here in just a second. And then finally, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, sometimes the prayer is not so much, God, I pray that you won't lead me into temptation. But it could be, God, I pray that you won't let me lead myself into temptation. Because that seems to be the problem more than anything. How often do we lead ourselves into temptation? We pray this prayer fervently because of that. Pick up in verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Again, that's a verse that we read over, but I would argue that may be the scariest verse that Jesus ever says. He seems to be indicating that we are forgiven with the same measure that we forgive others. Kind of makes you rethink that grudge, doesn't it? Kind of makes you think that maybe it's not really worth it to withhold my forgiveness from that person who needs it. The idea is this. The person who prays not for the approval of man, not to be recognized for how holy they are, not to be held in high esteem by the people around them, but rather to be recognized by God and to show their love for God, that person knows what it means to be forgiven. After all that God has forgiven us for, who are we to withhold forgiveness from others? So Jesus makes it clear. Here's what not to do when it comes to prayer. Here's what to do. Here's some content for you to go off of. But how can we become the kind of people who get prayer, who get study, who get fasting, who get forgiveness? How can we become those kinds of people? Again, like Jesus talks about, it's a matter of the heart. Turn to Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, the last passage we're going to look at this morning. Paul writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul's talking about who is really a part of God's family. And he says that, you know what? God's family are not the ones who were born to the right family. God's family is not the ones who have followed all the rituals, who look the part on the outside. 
God's family, they're the people whose hearts have been changed. That's who belongs in God's family. Their heart has been changed by the Spirit. Not by their own efforts, not by their own will, but by the Spirit living inside of them. And Paul says, you know, that person, they won't get praise from man. But they'll get the praise that matters. The praise that comes from God and God alone. The praise that lasts into eternity. So as great as this all sounds, why do we pray? What's the point? Jesus said in that Matthew 6 passage that God already knows everything we need. So what's the point of even speaking to him? It's not like we have to remind God of something that he just happened to overlook. We don't have to tell God, hey, by the way, I uh, don't know if you remember this, but about a week ago, this thing happened to me, and I'd really like it if you kind of step in and just get this figured out for me. Any time now? Come on. That's not the idea of prayer. The idea of prayer is that we pray to express our trust. We pray to express our submission. We pray to express our dependence upon God and God alone. We pray because we know that he knows what is best for us even when it doesn't seem like it in the world around us. We pray so that we can give our worries to him because we trust that he can handle them in whatever way he sees fit, which is better than the ways that we see fit. We study to learn how dependent we are upon God. We fast to experience just how dependent upon God we are, to remind ourselves of it. And we pray to express just how dependent we are upon God. So maybe you're in here and your prayer life has been stale. I encourage you to dive back into prayer, to see the importance of this, to see the weight of this, to see the grace that we are given to even dare come into God's presence. And yet, because of Jesus, we can do so with confidence. Maybe your prayer life isn't quite what it used to be. You know, you know a lot about God. You know the Bible cover to cover. You're really good at that study thing. But knowing a lot about God and having an intimate relationship with God are not the same thing. But I also know that prayer can be difficult. It can be scary. It can be intimidating. We often don't know where to start the same way we talked about study. Well, if you're looking to develop this discipline of prayer, I'd suggest a few things. Number one, read the Psalms. If there's one book in scripture that can help you in your prayer life, it would be the Psalms. Those were Israel's original prayer book. These are the recordings of those prayers, those people who depended upon God for everything. Look through the Psalms, read the Psalms, do it daily, do it weekly, do it something like that. Look up the prayers of others who have come before you. I know some of us don't really like that. That makes us a little bit uncomfortable. We think, well, I don't want to pray somebody else's prayer. That's not really coming from my mind. That's not really coming from my heart. Let me encourage you. There is nothing wrong with looking at the prayers of others and using those as inspiration for what it is that you might say to God, that what it is that you might have to express to God. And then the other thing is by a devotional. Some of us find those cheesy, but they can be very, very helpful. But more than anything, if you're looking to develop this discipline of prayer, it's not about reading the right book. It's not about buying a devotional. It's not about finding the right prayers to look at. That stuff can help. But what it all comes down to is asking God to change your heart. 
maybe all you can muster up in a prayer is saying, God, change me. That's a good place to start. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by the fact that through your son Jesus, we have access to you, that we can come into your presence, that we can speak to you. God, we are so small in the big scheme of things. You're like the ocean, we're a drop in the bucket, and yet, through your son Jesus, you show that you want to relate to us, people who are flawed, people who are messed up, people who often don't really want to relate to you a whole lot, and yet you're faithful. And God, that is truly amazing. I pray that our prayers will not be to impress those around us. They will not be to fulfill an obligation. They will not be to check a box. But rather they will be to truly be in relationship with you. To truly express our dependence upon you. Our submission to you, even when your kingdom might infringe upon ours. God, we love you. We're thankful for all that you do for us. We're thankful that you know our needs, even when we don't know the words to express or how to say them. But God, more than anything, we're thankful for your son, Jesus. We're thankful for your Holy Spirit living inside of us that is working on us and transforming us and pruning us every single day. And we're grateful that we are invited to be a part of that. God, I pray that that process will continue. God, we love you. We honor you. We glorify you in all that we say and all that we do. And I pray that our study, I pray that our fasting, and I pray that our prayers will do that as well. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe you haven't yet placed your faith in the bread of life. Maybe you haven't yet gotten to a point where you're ready to express your dependence upon God's grace. Well, if you're at that point this morning, we're going to have several of our elders standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to talk with you. They'd be happy to pray with you. They'd be happy to answer any questions that you might have. So we hope that you'll take advantage of that.